Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. One winter's morning 24 years ago, I had a meeting with an elderly man in a basement room near St Paul's Cathedral. He made me lie on a hard bed, hit my knees with a rubber hammer and peered into my mouth. He then shone a light into my ears, put a metal implement on my chest and pressed his fingers into my stomach. Had I been a man, I would have suffered the further indignity of having to pull my pants down and cough so that he could cup his hand around my balls. In those days, we did not think twice about it. This was a medical check that everyone had to pass in order to get an office job. We didn't wonder whether the condition of our tonsils, or balls, was our employer's business, or what it had to do with our ability to write news stories about company profits. Those were simple times. We understood that our medical details were confidential, in the sense that they weren't a topic for general discussion. But we also understood that if the test had thrown up something sinister, which it seldom did as it was so perfunctory, our employers would be perfectly entitled to say that they didn't want to hire us after all. Now the relationship between our health and our employment is far more murky, and none of us seems to understand it at all. Last week, the journalist Andrew Marr asked the British Prime Minister if he were taking pills to help him cope with the pressures of the job, and all hell broke loose. Viewers complained to the BBC that Marr had no business making such an impertinent and insensitive inquiry. Marr replied that the Prime Minister's health is relevant to the nation, which is in effect his employer, and that the question was quite fair. Newspaper columnists lined up to thrash it out. What has happened since the days of my medical is that the law in the UK has marched forward to protect the employee. Employers don't usually bother with the medical as they know that if they turned anyone down on the strength of it, they'd be likely to have the pants sued off them. But at the same time, employees' reticence about discussing once private health matters at work, or anywhere at all, has vanished. In an office corridor recently, I heard two women noisily discussing their menopause symptoms. On television, there are programmes in which a cod doctor examines people's stools and celebrities calmly discuss their enemas. Yet despite this unseemly outpouring, the biggest problem of all, mental health, remains tight shut. There's no shortage of general chat on the pressures of work and the effect that this has on mental health, but no one wants to admit to suffering any symptoms themselves. To do so would seem weak, and weakness is even more unacceptable as an office trait than laziness or lecherousness. I can only think of four people in the public eye who have admitted to suffering from mental illness, and three of them don't count. Stephen Fry made a TV programme about being bipolar, but he doesn't count as he's a national treasure and national treasures can get away with anything. He's also creative, and depression mixed with creativity can look, to the ignorant observer, borderline glamorous. Then there's Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair's former press man, whose admission doesn't count either as he had such a reputation for being hard and mean 
being seen as a bit weak made him more human. Then there was Kel Magna Bondovic, the Norwegian Prime Minister, who said he was depressed through pressure of work and needed time off. He didn't count because he was Norwegian, and Norway is evidently a lot more civilised in these matters. And finally, there was Lord Stevenson, who admitted when he was chairman of HBOS to having had a couple of spells of depression. This was brave and did count. Employers, he said, should be a lot more sympathetic. Which, alas, they are not. The truth is that given our ignorance and squeamishness about mental health, it's probably better to shut up about it. We have very little idea what is going on in the minds of our workmates or how anyone is actually getting from one end of the day to the other. Leadership jobs are now so hellish, involve so much travel, so much aggro and so much public failure, that one might think the only sensible response is to swallow handfuls of pills. If, in some hideous reincarnation, I found myself the Prime Minister or a CEO, I dare say I'd be on uppers and downers and beta blockers and sleeping pills to make things seem less bad. But if these enabled me to do the job, my bathroom cabinet would be my business alone. I asked a couple of doctors if most of the leaders in the country were taking pills to help them through. No, they said. Senior jobs can damage one's mental health, but not as much as junior jobs or no jobs at all. One doctor, who used to work for a huge retail chain, told me that by far the most serious problems were presented by the company chauffeurs. Either way, there are 36 million prescriptions written in the UK each year for drugs to help people get through the day. What is really shocking is not that Ma dared to ask the Prime Minister if he took pills, but that it was seen as such a big deal one way or another. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.